algorithms, and we have a whole host of them, definitely run the business in a very real, meaningful way. All great algorithms starts with great data. If you have garbage in, you're going to have garbage out. Having really high fidelity data is one of the key differentiators for any high-performing model. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Garbage in, garbage out. It's a philosophy every data leader is familiar with. Your algorithms and models are only as good as the data you put in them. So how do you ensure the data you're leveraging is reliable and trustworthy? Joining Cindy today is Open Door co-founder and CTO, Ian Wong. Open Door is on a mission to remove the guesswork from home buying. And in this episode, Ian details how the company's algorithms provide future home buyers peace of mind about getting the best possible offer for their home. Ian explains how the team harnesses multiple data sources and uses machine learning to maintain a competitive advantage. Plus, Ian and Cindy discuss how to turn those valuable data insights into measurable business results. All that and more on today's episode with Open Doors, Ian Wong. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and Medtronic use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. So this week on The Data Chief, we have a really cool person and startup, Ian Wong, the CTO and co-founder of Open Door. Ian, welcome. Hey, thanks, Cindy, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Good. So, Ian, where are you joining us from today? I'm based here in Seattle and uh, Washington, and spring is finally here. The rain is gone, and uh, it's really beautiful out. And that snow, you had a weird snowstorm this year. But I guess I should ask you, did you buy your home on Open Door? Not yet. Oh, no, we're not, not alive. Yet. Oh, no! <laughs> I can't wait to actually use it out here. Okay, good. Now, for people who are not familiar with Open Door, tell us a little bit about it. Open door is the best way to buy or sell a home. Now, if you want to sell a home, there's a lot of pain points actually surrounding that sell process today. It's going to take you roughly three months to sell a home. And in those three months, you're doing a lot of work. You're paying a 5 to 6% fee. And worst of all, you don't really know how much you can sell your home for and how long it's going to take you to sell that home. And so with Open Door, you can simply come to our website, submit your information about the house, and get an offer within the same day and choose a remove update. So that really unlocks liquidity for homeowners. Now, on the buyer side, we've also done a lot of work to make it easier to tour, to shop, and to close a home. We most recently launched a cash-backed offer for buyers. That makes it a lot more competitive in this market today. So we are really trying to innovate on ways to help homeowners and home shoppers sell and buy Okay, this is fascinating. So really, Open Door is a digital native company born in the cloud and really buying the risk or taking the risk out of it for the seller rather than the buyer. Would, is that a fair description? That's definitely one of our uh, main products, which is to be able to sell to Open Door. And you're right, we are a digital native company. The realization is that if you look at 
every single transaction outside of real estate, be that cars or clothes or electronics, be that hailing a ride or getting your groceries, right? Today, you can all do that. You can do all of that digitally, on demand, and the experience is very seamless. But for some reason, when it comes to the single largest transaction in people's lives and the single largest asset that most people will ever own, the experience is completely backwards. And so we said, hey, what is the trend of technology? Where are things heading? And how do we bring that experience to the housing experience to a 21st century standards? And so you know, we came up with the idea of, well, selling your home directly to open door and making that super easy and um, stress-free for sellers. And that's where we started. Yeah. So that's brilliant on the one hand, but if I'm buying my groceries online, okay, 50 bucks, if that gets messed up, whatever. But a home is different. What do you think to that? Totally. I think that's why we are so invested in pricing and data. Because at the end of the day, if we offer something that's not competitive for someone's home, they're not going to take it. Conversely, if we overbid on a home, then that's bad for our bottom line. And so how do we actually manage this business? And how do we make sure that we deliver on our product premise where folks are getting competitive offers and get to enjoy the seamless experience? It has to be backed by data and it has to be backed by applying, say, the art machine learning. For instance, if you get multiple inspectors or multiple assessors or multiple appraisers to take a look at the same home, they actually could come up with wildly different values. For sure. Yeah. Right. And so there's a lot of inherent noisiness in this process. And again, as a homeowner, you're entrusting quote unquote an expert to be able to price their home, to be able to sell your home and do all that. And what we're able to do at Open Door is actually leverage data and leverage you know, machine learning to be able to really model a home as accurately as we can and do that at scale consistently. And, you know, we've been able to really provide competitive offers to sellers. And that's really what's fueled the growth of the company. So Ian, you referred to data and the models, and really this is, it's bringing the need for the accuracy of those predictive models. Like I think about my corporate moves over my life and yeah, the differences between three different appraisers can be off by so much. So really, this wouldn't have been possible before without machine learning. Is that right? I think, yeah, it would be very difficult because really what the algorithms are trying to do is we have all this transaction history of listings, of homes that have been still in the market, and we can then collect a lot of data about the home and also all the attributes of the surroundings and the transactions that have happened nearby combined with how the housing market is moving. And then we can take all those features as input and predict, hey, how much would this home really sell for on the market? The nice thing about using rigorous machine learning and statistics is that the data doesn't lie, right? You can really understand if you're going for an accurate offer or an accurate valuation that you know, the data keeps you honest. And so you're constantly trying to improve, iterate, and reduce the errors so that we can give better and better offers. Open Door now started in 2014, now publicly traded. I believe the most recent valuation was 15 billion, but you let me know if I'm wrong there. And just under a thousand employees. But you're also the co-founder, the chief data scientist. What attracted you to the real estate market? Where did this idea come from? Yeah, so I have to give credit where credit is due. 
And my co-founders, uh, Eric and Keith, uh, really came up with the idea. And they observed that essentially real estate, like we talked about, single largest asset class, single largest transaction is very backwards. And all the quote-unquote technology solutions are really honestly lead gen for agents. And the experience itself still is very antiquated. So how do we actually make a step function change in reducing the amount of pain that customers go through as they're moving? So the thing that really drew me to Open Door is, I think if you look at the trends in finance and technology, it's really giving people more options, right? Financial freedom, geographic mobility, these are the things are enabled by great applications of technology and finance. Another framework that I have is, it's a bit of a funny one, but a proxy for how much impact you can have in the world is, what is a dollar weighted pain? <laughs> Meaning how much money are people <laughs> spending and how painful is the experience associated with that dollar amount? And it's very clear that real estate was this unique outlier in a terrible sense where it was both expensive and painful. If you can solve that, you know, I think the most powerful thing is you can really enable cons consumers and, you know, honestly, people across this country to dream bigger. Yeah, dollar-weighted pain is an interesting phrase. And I think if you look in the pandemic, well, you talk about mobility. Are there some hidden insights or interesting insights that you're seeing in your data where people are selling and now as you start maybe where people are buying? Yeah, so COVID has been just absolutely a whirlwind for the world in many different ways. And real estate was not spared from that. In early March, when it all hit the country, I think there was a bit of a standstill. Uh, folks weren't really sure how long it was going to last. Folks really weren't sure the impact on the economy, on their lives. But what we saw last year is that folks started to really appreciate space a lot more. And so we are seeing massive growth in some of these other uh, markets outside of, say, New York, you know, San Francisco, and even Seattle City proper into the Phoenixes, uh, the Atlantas of the world. So we are definitely seeing some of this reverse migration happening. COVID accelerated some of the changes that would have happened anyway with a demographic shift and you know, really wanting to have, again, more space uh, for people's families. And I think that there's one more contributing factor, which is rates are at an all-time low. That's created this very attractive environment for folks to buy or sell homes. Yeah, it is fascinating to see the shifts in this work from anywhere and low interest rates. So where I live in rural New Jersey now, Open Door is not here, but I did look at my old home in the suburbs of Houston. And the price for that home is up um, more than 15% in just the yeah. last nine months. It, the way you tracked it was very cool. <laughs> so if you think about this, one of the things that powers your own innovation is the cloud. You couldn't have done this before if the cloud didn't exist. Can you tell us a little bit more about how being born in the cloud has allowed you to get to more data and scale some of your machine learning algorithms better, faster. Yeah, totally. I worked at Facebook for a little bit and uh, I used to be at Square and Facebook obviously managed their own data centers. To this day, they still do. And I remember the first week at Square, I had to still actually go to our data center. There were like three machines that powered off Square. That was uh, 2011. 
And fast forward to when we started the company in 2014, the world has already changed super quickly in that time period. We saw the maturation of, well, not necessarily maturation, but we saw the uh, availability and the adoption of AWS. And you know, of course, now there's GCP and Azure and other cloud platforms. And so being on AWS has been huge for us because, look, we don't have to figure out you know, how to spin up our own racks, our own servers. Um, we were able to just spin up instances of, say, EC2 for you know, our web applications. We were able to spin up uh, RDS for our databases so we can actually just start. Mm-hmm. We can be more focused on the business logic and the algorithms development versus having to stress out about you know, how do we get this developer operations and actually really low-level engineering going. So really reduce the cost for us to go from an idea to a prototype. And as we scale, it's just a parameter on the cloud, right? I want to go from two machines to 20 machines. I would like to get from you know this right. uh, amount of um, data storage to that amount of data storage. And that becomes very easy. Yeah. So in a way, it's allowing you to focus on the core competencies of the business rather than the infrastructure. That's exactly right. We do have cloud native listeners um, on this podcast, but we also have many just now embarking on their journey to get their data centers in the cloud. Two big fears is that the surprise costs, controlling costs in the cloud is different. And then also security. Can you comment on that? Yeah, those are both important issues. And I think absolutely you have to watch out for those two things. I believe cloud costs, if you don't, just like anything else, if you don't measure it, it could you know, get out of hand. And so you know, for us, we put processes in to make sure we audit costs um, and to make sure that we regularly ask ourselves, hey, for things that are growing, are they growing um, sensibly? You know, are there ways in which we are inefficiently allocating resources. So, you know, it does take attention because it is so easy to scale up resources. On the security side, absolutely. You know, we recently hired a chief information security officer and the skill set that I looked for in a CISO absolutely is about how do we have someone who has cloud experience? Um, because again, you don't have to build a lot of things anymore, but actually figuring out how to configure, how to leverage what's best practice and what's you know, the best of breed tooling off the shelf is itself actually a skill set. So you, you definitely have to pick, uh, pay attention to that. Yeah. So the skill set, I think, is probably the bigger thing. And that's where some of this misplaced fear is. We know in 2020, more of the security breaches take healthcare or education was in on-premises data centers, not in the cloud data centers, but it's a new skill set. So you are in Seattle. You also have employees all over the country. How do you vie for talent with these rare skill sets? Talent in engineering and technology in general has always been very difficult to hire. So, you know, I wouldn't say that it's been easy, but I think one thing that's really worked well for us is that number one, hey, we're trying to really innovate in an integrated industry. And from a mission standpoint, that really resonates with a lot of potential employees. They want to be able to make their mark and work on something that's truly groundbreaking. So that's helped a lot. Um, Separately, I actually think the harder a problem is, the more ambitious the problem, uh, problem is, sometimes it's actually easier to attract great talent because great talent oftentimes don't want to be working on the same thing over and over again. And so 
actually presenting the problem as, hey, this is something really innovative. No one's ever done this before. By the way, it's extremely hard. That actually works well. And so we've actually been able to use that to attract you know, folks that are both mission-oriented and just tremendous in their crafts. Yeah, that's interesting. So I do think those bold, big ideas do attract the innovators, the entrepreneurs. And in a way, it seems to me you're just getting started reading about some of your vision here, leveraging the whole buy-sell real estate ecosystem. So something about taking advantage of the network effects, bringing home loans even into the process. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. One of the approaches we've taken with building this company is for it to be a vertical company. Um, We're not afraid of taking on balance sheet risk. We're not afraid to you know, build a mortgage arm. We're not afraid to acquire a title and escrow company and actually make that seamless too. So our approach has been distinctly, let's make the experience as simple um, and as basic as possible for homeowners and home shoppers. So if you're shopping for a home while you're looking for financing, that's in fact, one of the first things that you need to understand how much home you can buy. And we realized that, hey, that was actually a common thing for a lot of our buyers who visit an open door home or use our services to tour any of the homes on the market. And so we said, well, if that's a customer pain point, let's go and build open door home loans. And so now that's integrated with the buying experience. Um, again, what I mentioned earlier, the open door backed offers as cash backed for buyers. We noticed that today in this market that home prices are rising super quickly. Homes are getting multiple offers very quickly. How do we help buyers be more competitive? And so we came up with a cash offer. So that obviously is intricate from a technology, pricing, finance perspective. But again, one of the key approaches we've taken is let's not be afraid of different disciplines. Let's actually figure out how to use that difficulty to our advantage. Because if it's hard for us, it's actually hard for everybody. And we might as well solve the hard problems to enable our customers. Yeah. And so one of the other hard problems in the data science uh, industry, there's two. (laughs) One is that very few models are operationalized. It sounds like for Open Door, most of yours would have to be because that's what drives the pricing or how much cash back to give. Is that right? Yeah. The algorithms, uh, and we have a whole host of them, definitely run the business in a very real, meaningful way. But on the pricing side, let's just focus on that for a quick moment. When someone submits information about their home, we actually take that information and we combine that with a data platform that we've really procured. Uh, We've ingested from a um, a variety of data sources. We've normalized them and made them available in real time. We combine that with our data set and we run it through our algorithms to understand, hey, what is the competitive price that we should be offering for this specific home? Right. So we have actually fairly cutting edge, deep learning based valuation models that we, from my perspective, is you know, the most advanced one out there. And we can see that in, in the accuracy of the model. And that's what's really driving the offers that we extend to customers. Yeah. So that's you're taking both first party data, maybe what I provide you as the seller, mm-hmm. <laughs> the number of bathrooms do I have, granite in my kitchen. Do I have a pool? Things like that. And then you're also combining it with third-party data. Can you give us some examples of this different third-party data or external data? Yeah. So all great algorithms uh, starts with great data. 
you know, if you have garbage in, you're going to have garbage out. <laughs> so data and having really high fidelity data is, I think, one of the key differentiators for any uh, high-performing model. So from our perspective, we've thought a lot about, hey, how do we create a strategic data modes to really separate us and make our offers as attractive as possible? So to your point, first-party data, absolutely. Customers tell us data about their home, and we are so detail-oriented when it comes to data that we actually created our own inspector app where our inspectors actually input data uh, on our behalf and we design the data interface that they use so they can truly be customized on the home and we actually can ask exactly what the algorithm needs to generate a good offer, right? So that's the level of detail that we get to on the one P side. And on the third party side, it's really a matter of being able to ingest all sorts of data. We're talking about transaction history. We're talking about public uh, record data, but we're also talking about very heterogeneous data types, geospatial in nature, free text in nature, images, videos, and really a lot of the magic sauce, if you will, is how do you take all these disparate types of data, normalize it, and make that readily available to both your product folks and your researchers so we can iterate very quickly. Yeah. So image data would include things like, what does the house look like? How far away is mm -hmm. a park? or a school, is there traffic nearby? Things like this? Absolutely, all of that. You know, one of the really fun problems <laughs> and challenging one is an image contains a lot of data, right? And if you think about how you personally value a home, obviously the sensory part of it matters a whole lot. And so actually a lot of the challenge that we've been wrestling is like how do you turn these sensory signals into structured ones so that the algorithm can really take advantage of it? And that's a big part of what we do. So one of the things that people talk about, though, is the art of the possible. There's so much data out there. When you look at acquiring this third-party data, how do you even begin to evaluate where to look for it and what might be useful? In any domain, as you think about third-party data, a lot of times your internal business analysts or your data scientists have pretty strong intuition, right? And for us, it's actually fairly... There is a method of validating it, right? We have a model, we have a back test, we know the error rates, we can understand, hey, if we ingested this data source, what is the incremental value as measured by the reduction in error? And so actually the key is to be, to create a platform where you can iterate quickly. So you could be fairly permissive with, hey, there's a data source over there, right? Like it may or may not reduce error. I think the faster or the less friction you can introduce from, hey, I have an idea for data source to, hey, what's a reduction in error or what's a value that's being created for the business, the better. So we've really tried to make the platform so that you can ingest new data sources quickly so that people can ideate and test out the ideas um, as quickly as possible. So it's that fast experimentation. And so that improvement is one of the challenges. How do you measure if a model really had the desired impact. And there's a statistic from MIT that 85% of machine learning and big data projects fail to deliver ROI. Now, I was debating with another thought leader in the space, Ben Taylor from Data Robot, define failure. Is it the ROI? Or if you experimented, but you learned what didn't work, there's value in that too. There are all sorts of failure modes for uh, machine learning to actually make a dent in business. And I think one of the most important aspects of any product development or machine learning development 
is that you want to be able to create an MVP very quickly and prove value. The longer, it's almost like, you know, the longer it takes you to get to a first version out, the higher the risk and lower the likelihood of success. Mm. And even in machine learning algorithms, you should be able to get something up and running, ideally within a week to even see, like end to end, have that be completely integrated with your product and, and see if it's actually delivering value. And I think where I've seen companies get in trouble is, oh, we're going to take it just a quarter. It's going to be fine. It's going to take a quarter and we're going to build this thing. And then let's kind of check back in a quarter and see if we can actually integrate this. We built our first valuation model at Open Door in the first month. That was already powering some of our offers. But we've had to improve that a lot over time. But at least there's a baseline from which we're improving things. Yeah, I like the idea of taking the time for the model development or for the value as that having be be one of the success metrics. That's good. Now, in a pandemic, though, a lot of machine learning models are trained on historical data sets, and we're having weird patterns. As one head of analytics said to me, you know, everything was zeros for the last month. How can I train my model on that? Has that been a challenge at Open Door or not really? This definitely has always been a challenge. Part of what we're trying to do is also macroeconomic in nature, right? Because we're trying to really understand how prices would move over time. And so macroeconomics is notoriously difficult. And you've had to apply really rigorous risk management principles and overlay some amount of judgment on top of that. But frankly, you know, in housing markets specifically, there have been micro market movements that have been uh, fluctuating quite a bit and we've been able to navigate those. You really have to strive for model, model interpretability. You really have to be able to figure out how do I stress test inputs and what are different scenarios um, that that creates from an output perspective and look at it from a risk slash probability standpoint. Hey, what are the ranges of possible outcomes and what's the amount of risk that the company is willing to take for a specific decision? Really being nuanced about the inputs and scenario analysis does help a lot. So all of these nuances, Ian, goes back to something else that you've talked about, advice to aspiring or, or data scientists earlier in their career. I have said that one of the reasons why we have a low success rate is an overemphasis on coding and an underemphasis on the business domain or communication skills. And I think this is something that you care about as well. Absolutely. Being a data scientist or data professional is hard because you have to combine technical skills, coding, algorithms, mathematics, statistics, you name it. And you have to combine that with commercial instincts, meaning your research isn't helpful unless it's actually serving customers or delivering on a business goal. And where a lot of data scientists I've seen um, struggle is either they have tremendous skill, but they don't necessarily have the nose for impact or knowing how to deliver an impact in a time-bound manner, or folks that actually may not have enough technical skills. So, you know, I think finding that balance is very important. Um, so my general advice for um, data scientists or analysts who come up from, from a very technical background is like, make sure you understand what's the business problem that you're trying to solve. And actually, like, what is a business equation that drives success for your domain? And what's the fastest way in which you can deliver value against that? Uh, and conversely, if someone comes up from a very business-oriented background, like, 
hey, you got to shore up your technical chops, be that SQL or Python or R or what have you. Um, and that's really important too. So do you think that organizations being realistic about the amount of upskilling on the business domain that needs to happen for them to be successful? Or are they just hoping, no, these unicorns are going to save us and help us and they can hit the ground running? I think onboarding data scientists is something to be very intentional about. So for instance, uh, for some of our data scientists at Open Door who work in pricing, we actually have them just manually price homes, go to a market and manually price homes uh, for a bit. Because the differentiator isn't the fact that you're using some fancy machine learning library. In fact, anybody with, a, you know, with some amount of coding chops can do that. The differentiator is actually how well do you understand the domain and how well are you translating this social economic behavior into code? That's really, really the skill. You know, I remember actually when I started at Square and I had to do fraud detection, one of my favorite things to do is actually talk to fraudsters. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I'm sure that was fascinating. Super. But then that gave me all the ideas, all the intuition around, oh, this is how you catch gift card fraud. This is how you catch like, you know, the travel agencies that are, you know, doing this and that, that are quote unquote, again, travel agencies, right? So these are all the things, non-intuitive things that you really just have to get your hands dirty and uh, get a feel for. So if you think about your teams and your career being an entrepreneur, is there ever a time when you felt like this is not going to work? This is going to be a failure. And how did you get yourself out of that? All the time. <laughs> I think anytime you're trying to do something in the proverbial zero to one phase, there is just a ton of risk, right? When yeah. we started Open Door, uh, we had this big thesis around buying and selling homes. The experience is broken. We can make it a lot better. And we have this thesis around liquidity. Sellers really want liquidity. And I still remember the first set of customer calls and everybody was like, are you guys like, we buy uglyhouses.com? No, I don't want to work with you guys. <laughs> and we have to overcome that perception. And that was actually yeah. very hard. And then there was a question around, hey, can we really scale? Like it's so operationally intense. You need all this capital. Will the algorithms actually work? And you know, when there's so much doubt externally, sometimes you ask yourself, gee, like, you know, is this thing really going to work? Yeah. But honestly, you know, sometimes you just got to, you know, keep your head down. I think what has really helped us is solve one problem at a time, right? One in a row, like solve that, get that one in a row. The and first get 1%. That next, yeah. Get that next one in a row. And over time you built that confidence. And now we feel like, Hey, we can really solve some, you know, difficult problems and deliver for our customers. Yeah. Solve one problem at a time. I like that. The other challenge though, that you face, many organizations are trying to transform digitally and they face the negative comments, the doubters internally, but you're trying to convince a whole industry. Like you will have real estate brokers who don't like this or city inspectors who don't like this, how do you convince them that this is better? Or do you just leave them by the side? Yeah. So I think there are two things that are just kind of external and internal. From an external standpoint, um, when it comes to doubters or other folks in the ecosystem, we try and partner with them, actually. And customers, or excuse me, agents is customer to us. We think we can actually help agents 
serve their customers better because we are another you know, tool in their toolbox where, hey, for the right customers, maybe it's better to actually get an offer from open door. And we make sure that agents are compensated as part of that. So we try to actually not necessarily take an antagonistic approach to anybody. Ultimately, I think the nice thing is if we keep our focus on the customer, we know that actually all these other folks in the ecosystem are likely trying to do the same. And so how do we actually partner together to serve our common purpose? And that's really been a you know, unifier for a lot of us in the ecosystem. And then internally, from as to what you were talking about, doubters, when it comes to going from a place that you're now not cloud native to maybe embracing the cloud, one of the techniques I found really helpful is just time bound it, right? Like even today, I don't run by fiat, you know, I don't rule by dictatorship. Like really you have to create an environment where great ideas can come from anybody. You should be able to enable your engineers, your designers, PMs to, you know, just do what they think is best for the company. And there are times when I say, oh, gee, like, I don't think this is going to work. I'm going to take a week, prove me wrong. One of the best things we do at Open Door is hack weeks. So for twice a year, we have a week-long hack week where folks can just, you know, throw caution to the wind, you know, throw our OKRs to the wind and actually do what they think will add the most value for the business. And so actually creating time and space for folks to really innovate is a great way to just let people have ownership and autonomy. Oh, for sure. Hackathons are so important. How often do you run them? Twice a year, uh, a week long. That's not too bad. I was talking to one CDO who runs them quarterly. It's like, wow, yeah. that takes a, it takes a lot of time to run them, to judge them, and then see what you're actually going to productize. Yeah, we, we do a whole week. So it's a lot of time every time we do it. But we find that um, it takes a week you know, to yeah. like build, uh, you know, ideate and prototype something meaningful. Yeah, good. So Ian, who are your mentors or what are the books and podcasts that influence your thinking and inspire you? Yeah, there are so many. <laughs> um, but I will say I was very influenced by my time early on at Square. And I had tremendous role models and Jack Dorsey, who was the CEO. Uh, and Keith Raboy, who uh, was a COO and later on became one of my co-founders at Open Door. And one of the great things from these two is they are super complimentary. Uh, from Jack, learned the importance of vision and keeping the customer as our focus and infusing design and soul into what you do, right? Craftsmanship matter, like paying attention to detail matters because all that's going to show up in the end products and your customers are going to enjoy that. From Keith, I learned how to operate or and operate ruthlessly, how to really focus on the deliverables, how to really break a problem down, how do you manage bad objectives, how to keep your times and calendar honest, what to focus on and when to delegate, all those details in terms of running an organization. I've been able to learn a ton from Keith. Yeah. So design and soul and operating ruthlessly, it sounds <laughs> like the yin and yang, the best of both worlds for a company. Totally. Good. Now, as we look back on the last year, our crazy year, tell me a time what's made you totally laugh out loud, like tears running down your cheeks. Well, on a personal level, I just became a new father. So oh, congratulations. <laughs> that finding out about the baby um, was amazing. From a professional level, last year was very tough. You know, in, in March or April, we've actually had to do uh, some substantial reorg of the company to be able to survive what we thought was going to be a very long winter. Mm -hmm. And coming out of the summer, we have this newfound, 
momentum behind the company. Uh, and in fact, we went public towards the end of last year. Congratulations. <laughs> yes, I saw you were one of the SPACs. <laughs> yeah, we'll call and call on the SPACs. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. And it just made me appreciate momentum. It made me appreciate the folks that we have who weathered through the storm with us. And I still remember actually going public and and not necessarily the, the milestone of going public, but actually appreciating the hard work that goes into that and all that, that our team and our teammates have given. And that that was an awesome moment. Yeah, congratulations. And some say that's really just the beginning. It's just a moment in time and the hard work continues. Ian, it's been such a pleasure having you on The Data Chief. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a blast. Thank you so much, Cindy. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. Join her on LinkedIn Live the first Thursday of each month for a live version of The Data Chief, where she'll share best practices and take your questions live. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.